word. We're going to be in the book of Luke this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. All right, we're going to be in a number of passages here this morning, and we're going to be starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Um, and we'll get to the passage uh, that we read from in a few minutes. The four Gospels in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not a real complicated message. Message is pretty simple. Jesus came to save sinners. The means by which he did this is he was born, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to shed his blood and pay the price for our sin. He rose from the dead so that we might have hope of eternal life when we put our faith in him. So, it's not real complicated. If you're a sinner and you want forgiveness, you believe in Jesus and he makes you righteous. Right? It's not terribly complicated. Uh, and so then we look at the uh, accounts, the historical accounts of the birth of Christ. Interestingly, only two of the Gospels include it. Uh, Matthew and Luke tell us a little bit about Jesus' birth. Uh, Mark and John couldn't be bothered uh, to include that information. And, uh, and that's okay. But what we have to recognize when we look at the accounts, the historical accounts of the birth of Jesus, we have to recognize they fit fundamentally in what the authors uh, by the Holy Spirit are trying to tell us, and it's this, Jesus saves. So we don't think of Jesus saves merely when we have Easter, and we maybe uh, think primarily about the resurrection of Christ. When we're looking specifically at the birth of Christ, we also have to be thinking the way the Holy Spirit wants us to think when reading the Gospels, Jesus saves. And we have to wonder, what are we to take away from the uh, account of Christ's birth, knowing that the message is Jesus uh, saves sinners. So I'm really just going to look at two 
things. There's a whole bunch of things we could look at. And, and you might say, why did I pick these two things? Because I felt like it. And I hope by prayer that this is where God was leading us. But there's a lot of things we could look at. But here's just two uh, areas I want to uh, look at. First one, uh, let's start in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, of all places. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus preaches a, a famous sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard of it. Some of you might have been there. I don't know. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. We're only going to read one verse. It's a fantastic sermon, probably one of the best ever preached. And uh, you should read it sometime if you haven't. Matthew 5, verse 5 says this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You've all heard this verse a million times. You have a cross stitched on a pillow in somewhere in your house. And so this isn't new information, but the problem is, think about it. That makes no sense. What is meek? Uh, meekness is not weakness or frailty. Meekness is such a high level of confidence in someone who is strong that I don't have to get all riled up. Meekness is, no, I'm good. I don't need to, to, I don't need to establish my position because it's been established. So I can be, if I can say it this way, I can just be chill. Because there is strength, I don't need to establish it or keep it. Meekness is, uh, as someone has said, strength under control. But it certainly isn't passive, but it also isn't a need to be uh, obtrusive and establish a dominant position. So the meek will inherit the earth. And why is this important? In our culture, meekness is not celebrated. Awesome is celebrated. Conquering is celebrated. Success is celebrated. Winning is celebrated. Victory is celebrated. Those who can exert their will on others are celebrated. Every year they don't produce the uh, 100 poorest members of society. They produce the 100 what? Wealthiest. And we all read those and act like we're casually disinterested. Oh, well, that, I would never want to be that wealthy. Yeah, right. We don't watch a sports actively looking forward to who didn't make the playoffs. We, we like winners. We like conquerors. We like successful. We like get it done kind of people. The kind of people who say, I'm going to do that, and they do it. We love that. We don't celebrate meekness. Meekness is a sense that, no, it's handled, so I don't need to worry about it. I can be at rest. But the Bible tells us, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. So here's the first thing I want to look at with that in mind, knowing that this is the way Jesus is going to approach his mission to save sinners. Jesus saves, first thing, Jesus saves by coming to the lowly. Jesus saves by coming to the lowly. Jesus came to the lowly because those are his kind of people. Jesus came to the lowly by coming lowly himself. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to Joseph of the house of David. And if you didn't know this, it says here, the virgin's name was Mary. Who is Gabriel? Gabriel had already uh, chatted with a guy named Zechariah, and Zechariah had given him a little bit of lip. And Gabriel said... Uh, bro, I hang out in the presence of God. You might want to check yourself. 
What did you say? I'm sorry. You, you don't have anything else to say? Yeah, that's right. You won't have anything else to say while your wife is pregnant. Nine months, you won't be able to say anything. That would be amazing, right? Elizabeth says, I want peanut butter and pickles. And he said, what's that? Yes, you'll go get it. See you later. Right? I mean, he has no way to argue. So this is Gabriel. He comes to Mary, and, and he says this to Mary. Mary, this unmarried virgin on the fringes of society, he says this, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at this, and she was trying to figure out what kind of a greeting this is. She had probably, my guess would be, never in her life been greeted as, O favored one. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. He tells her she will bear in herself a son, a son from God, conceived in her by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that son is God himself. Son of the Most High. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And she, of course, says, how is this possible? This is a fair question. How is this possible? She's asking both a question of biology as well as a question of why. Biology. I haven't been with my husband and we're unmarried. How is this possible? And the angel makes it clear. What will be conceived in you will be conceived in you of the Holy Spirit. Your husband won't be involved in that. He will be the son of the Most High. What will be conceived in you will be of God created in you by God himself. Secondly, why is this possible? He says, uh, he, this is, look, even Elizabeth in her old age, it says in verse 36, has conceived a son. And Mary comes to understand she is favored by God, not because she has earned God's favor, but because God has seen fit to favor her. And this is her response. Look, behold, I am your servant. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary's question is this, why would the Lord come to me and how is this possible? The how is it possible question is easy. God does impossible things and she believed God. The second thing is, uh, why is God doing this? And the fact is because God favored her, not because she was favorable. Jesus saves by coming to the lowly. There are a number of people in Jewish society at that time that most people likely would have thought would be much more qualified to bear the Messiah. Why not a daughter of the high priest? Why not the daughter of some high political noble or a daughter of someone who has established themselves as a ruler or a leader? Or certainly uh, somebody who could have enough influence so that when the Messiah was born, they could successfully get the word out to all the important people so that he could actually be effective, right? I mean, this is, this is what you would do. I mean, think of it. Jesus, the Son of God, has always existed and will always exist. Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born. Jesus, who has always existed, was born as a man, fully man, and fully God. What this means is he got to choose exactly the manner in which he was born. If you were him, would you have chosen this? Well, of course we wouldn't. We would have chosen some lofty and important position that might afford itself some of the appointments of power and success and maybe even just a little bit of comfort, right? Jesus, on purpose, chose none of these avenues for his birth 
And Jesus never does anything accidentally. On purpose, he was born to the lowly so that we would see crystal clear Jesus saves by coming to the lowly. Mary believed God that he could do the impossible, and Mary believed God that he would favor someone as lowly as her. One of the things we should ask when we read scripture like this is, is this question. I wonder what God is like. What is, is God like? If you met him on the street or you wandered into the doors of heaven and, and said hi to him, what is God like? And, and I want to just draw one principle from this that I'll share with you here, and you can write it down and decide if you agree or disagree. Uh, this is my observation. God is most glorified to work most powerfully in the most unlikely. God is most glorified. We see this in Mary, and we can go all throughout the New Testament. God is most glorified to work most powerfully in the most unlikely. What we need to recognize is all of us are unlikely. The problem is some of us think we're more likely than all the other unlikelies. Jesus saves by coming to the lowly, those who recognize not likely he's going to come to me. And he says, that's precisely who I'm coming to. One quick observation as a way of just rattling around in your head, and you can ignore this or not. It's my privilege to be irritating. When we think of our celebrations of Christmas today, and I love our celebrations of Christmas, don't get it wrong. I've been in in the United States my entire life, right? I love it. I love how we celebrate Christmas. I, I get a kick out of it. I love opening presents. I even like a little bit watching other people open presents. I'm more kind of into opening my own, though, just to be honest. I like Christmas trees. I like how they smell. Uh, I like driving downtown Medford and seeing the lights up. Isn't that fun? I'm not totally into COVID Christmas. Like, I, 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 you know, I, I could do without that. But you know what? I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make it work. Why not? Right? But here's the thing I want you to think about. Christmas today, the way we celebrate it, have we maybe accidentally decided that Christmas is most enjoyed by the most important? That Christmas is most enjoyed by those of us who have resources to buy really exciting things for others. It is most enjoyed by those of us who have jobs where we can take a week off before or after Christmas. It's most enjoyed by those of us, and, and trust me, I've done it and I've enjoyed it, where we have the opportunity to enjoy Christmas on a warm beach where we can take a trip for Christmas, an off-site Christmas, and it's most enjoyable for the most important and the most resourced. And, and I think we ought to enjoy the blessing God has given us. Don't get me wrong. But we also ought to be willing to analyze how we enjoy Christmas and say, but don't, we don't want our, celebrate, our celebrations to accidentally take away from what was actually being communicated, where the birth of Christ was intended to communicate. This is for the lowly. This is for the lowly, the ones who on Christmas, they're going to have to work another shift. And the ones who, who couldn't get a lot for their family, but they got a little something. This is, this is how we ought to think about Christmas. It is not primarily for the most important. In fact, I would suggest our Savior says, it was intentioned to communicate, I came to save the lowly. All right, I'll move on. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Pat was kind enough to read it. Let's just remind ourselves what it said. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus 
in those days, a decree went out from who? Caesar. No, that's wrong. This is what's beautiful about this passage. We, we need to understand that, that Luke didn't accidentally, he wasn't like, okay, what happened? What year was it? Oh, Caesar was in power. And he's not just, nothing in the, in the scripture is casual or happenstance. He's not merely trying to affix a date on it. So Bible trivia people later can try and figure out the precise date of Christ's birth. He's telling us this on purpose. Who is Caesar? Politically and in the world, the most powerful person who exists. If Caesar wants it, it happens. Caesar wakes up one morning, decides he would feel a lot better if he knew how many people he could tax and if he knew how many people he could draft into the military because it's money and military which establishes an empire. And he decided, I'm going to take a, a census so I can decide how much money I have and will have and how big my military will be. And so he issues an edict and, Mo, and Moses, no, wrong guy, Joseph and Mary, pregnant, now have to make their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Who decided Joseph and Mary needed to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Not Caesar. God did. Here's what we need to understand. The author of the Bible, by the Holy Spirit, is telling us. God makes Caesars do what he wants just because. That's how powerful God is. That God has a plan, this child, his son, prophecies have been told uh, in the prophets that he will be born in Bethlehem, but Moses, for the love of Pete, (laughs) Moses is not the father of Jesus, unless something's changed, I'm not paying attention to. (laughs) Joseph and Mary have to make their way to Bethlehem, and God decides to get them out the door by using Caesar. He could have done this any of us. He could have sent John the Baptist to him right? Even as a baby. He could have sent uh, her Elizabeth and Zechariah. Hey, go up and tell Mary she's got to go to Bethlehem. Has she not read the Old Testament? What are you doing in in Nazareth? You can't have your baby there. Everybody knows you got to go to Bethlehem. But instead, to establish who precisely and exactly is in charge, God has Caesar Augustus issue a proclamation. And everybody knows now, is Caesar in charge? Absolutely not. Caesar does what God needs him to do so that the baby will be born in Bethlehem. So Mary and Joseph make their way from Nazareth up to Bethlehem. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, some of you who have Bibles, you're saying, well, my phone doesn't have a back to it. Okay. You'll notice Bethlehem is to the south of Nazareth. And you say, how is it down to Nazareth in your Bible when it says up and down? It's not a compass designation. We say we go down to California and we go up to Washington, or, well, at least we used to. Um, in the Bible, up and down are altitude designations. So Bethlehem, especially Jerusalem, because Bethlehem's not too far to the south of Jerusalem, is one of the highest elevation places in Israel. So it's uphill there almost from anywhere in Israel. And so he says you're going up to Bethlehem. They are going south, but they're going up in altitude. And so that Mary and Joseph have to make their way in a long several days journey to Bethlehem. I don't know if Mary was riding on a donkey or not. It doesn't say, but I would suggest this. Mary was pregnant as far as I could tell from the scripture. I don't know if riding a donkey would be better. I've never been pregnant and I've never ridden a donkey, but I don't know if there's a comfortable way without a car to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem while pregnant. And God saw fit to get them on that road. 
by using the most powerful human in existence to show that God is in charge, Caesar is not. God is in power, Caesar is not. They are sent down to uh, Bethlehem into a small town, and of course it's crowded because of the census, and, and there isn't a guest room available that would be appropriate for a woman who is nearly about to give uh, birth, and none of this is out of God's plan. All of this is according to God's plan and his purpose, which is to show he has power and he is in charge of what's going to happen. God is in charge of what's going to happen. Everything that happens in, this, in, the, in the account of Jesus' birth is to communicate us to us something about God's plan. Number one, he comes for the lowly. And secondly, he is totally in charge. He is totally in power over this. Think of another place in the scripture. Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate says to him, aren't you going to say anything? Don't you understand I have authority to give you life or take it? Can you imagine talking to the creator of the universe in such a way? And what does Jesus say? Now, the authority you have has been given to you. Do your thing. And this is Jesus in meekness, recognizing God is in charge, that he is still in charge. Jesus says, by coming to the lowly and using his power even to overcome those who would oppose him. One last comment on this before we move to uh, the, some other scriptures. Uh, it's embarrassingly easy for God to do his will, even when those oppose him. Like, Caesar's a pretty powerful guy. I mean, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And it was, God was not uptight. Well, what am I going to do? Caesar's, boy, he's a pretty powerful guy. He's, man, he might ruin my whole plan. No, it, it is embarrassing for Caesar. How easy it is for God to simply walk through any who oppose him. In fact, God is so powerful, he doesn't uh, merely overcome those who oppose him. He uses those who oppose him to do whatever he wants. He uses Caesar who would oppose him to accomplish his purpose of having Christ born in Bethlehem. Might I suggest just one thing we might squirrel away in the back of our minds this year. Um, is God still that powerful? Someone has said this, and I don't mind stealing their quote. God did not wake up surprised that 2020 happened. Like he wasn't, oh, my land, I had no idea this was coming. God is not wringing his hands trying to figure out how to work it out. Now, certainly we would have chosen another path, wouldn't we? I mean, if we're given options, COVID, Alameda fire, a number of other things, would we have chosen these things? Of course not. But, God, but we get all uptight and we get worried and that's the position we are in. But God himself is not worried. There is nothing that is even close to opposing his purposes going forward. In fact, it's embarrassing how easy his work is done in the face of opposition. And all I would suggest, knowing this from the scripture and knowing what God is like and what he's up to, is maybe there is a place for us to recognize what God is like and rest. If we are in the kingdom of God, it's good. It, now, honestly, it may not be the way we like it, but God is not out of control. There is nothing happening that God is not intentionally using to further his purpose to save and to redeem, and to draw us closer to him. But there is no need for anything other than rest. We can rest in God because he uses 
even Caesar Augustus to accomplish his will. If I were powerful enough to make Caesar Augustus do anything I wanted, I would do something more than just make Mary and Jesus go to Bethlehem. Wouldn't you do something huge? And God says, no, I'll just have him make Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem on a whim, it seems. Jesus saves by coming to the lowly because that is what he is like. All right, this question, then we're going to move on to Luke chapter 2, beginning of verse 8. With such a small beginning, who would find this kind of Messiah compelling? If Jesus saves, and Jesus saves the lowly, and if this is how he is beginning, who would find this kind of Messiah compelling? And the answer is, outsiders would find this kind of Messiah compelling. Outsiders would be drawn to him. Think of exclusive clubs. Maybe you belong to an exclusive club. I don't. I've tried. They won't let me in. But you could think of an athletic club that you're a part of, maybe a fraternal organization. Maybe uh, there's a particular nightclub you like going to, and they've got a velvet rope out there, and you have to look the part before you're going to let you in. Exclusive clubs have one basic rule. Nobody gets in. The job of everybody who wants to get in is to figure out a way to get in. Who do I have to be friends with? What charity do I have to donate to? What kind of business associations do I have? need to have so that I can get into the exclusive club. Then, once you're in the club, the job is to keep everybody out. You're in the club, and the job is to keep outsiders out, keep them behind the velvet ropes, ensure that only insiders get in. And what Jesus did, and what the the narrative of his birth demonstrate, is Jesus is leaving the club, and he's looking for outsiders. That's what Jesus is doing. He's leaving the exclusive club, and he's saying, I don't want any part of that, so to speak. I am seeking outsiders. Why? Because he is one. Look at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. In that same region, there were shepherds. Of course, we all know the story of the shepherds. They're out tending their flock by night, and angels appear to them, and they sing them a great song. It was probably nearly as good as Michael Buble. I mean, it was that good. And they tell, to, they tell, him, tell the shepherds this in Luke 2.10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you're going to find him wrapped in swaddling cloths laying in a, a manger. And so they come to the shepherds and say, I've got good news for you guys. A savior is born. Now, why would they come to shepherds? There's a number of reasons. Number one, shepherds is a constant theme in your Old Testament. David was drawn out of the shepherd fold to become a king. The kings were evaluated by God often by the prophets as to whether or not they were shepherding their people. One of the great sins of Ahab, according to the prophet, was this. Ahab, your people are like sheep without a shepherd. And it was a great knock on Ahab. He wasn't caring for his people. He's caring for himself. So there was this notion that the Messiah would be a shepherd. So it sort of makes sense that the angels would come to the shepherds. But on the other hand, shepherds were kind of rowdy. Shepherds didn't always have the best reputation. Number one, they smelled. Like every now and then, shepherds, a bath, mix it in. Get a little sheep off of you before you come rolling into the market. And there was things they, would, they didn't have necessarily great reputations of the community. And so to have the angels announce the birth of the Savior to the shepherds, on the one hand, biblically seems to make sense. On the other hand, culturally, 
Why didn't they go to a political leader? Why didn't they go to the high priest? Why come to these outsiders? And the reason is because Jesus is the savior of outsiders. He brings them good news. That's what he says in verse 10. I bring you good news. What he's trying to explain to them is something has happened that's going to make you happy. Now, if he would have gone to religious leaders, what they would have wanted is not good news, but good rules. The angels would show up. Religious leaders, it turns out, all of your strict rules were right on. You have finally done enough good to earn an angel's visit. But the angels didn't go to the religious leaders. The angels didn't go to the political leaders and say, finally, you have wielded enough influence in the culture. You have become important enough for us to find you usable. So therefore, we have... You have earned our visit. No, the angels go to the shepherds and give them what? Good news. As one author has said, they didn't bring good advice. Shepherds, let's give you some tips on how to live your best life now. That was, that's out of line. That's going to make some of you mad. He didn't, he didn't come to them with advice. Listen, shepherds, I've got some ways for you to clean up your act so God will finally favor you. No, what what did they bring to them? Good news. God has come for you, the outsiders. He favors you because he has brought salvation to you. The Messiah is here. He has brought hope for his people. There was a show on a while ago. I'm sure you've heard it. It's called Home Extreme Home Makeover Home Edition. Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Did I get it? Is it close enough? All right. Obviously, I haven't seen it a lot. And did you ever wonder when watching that show, who's seen this show? I mean, they did one of the houses here in Southern Oregon, right? Um, have you ever wondered why they didn't go to anybody with a mansion? Why didn't they go to Jerry Seinfeld's house out on Long Island? Hey, Jerry, uh, we're here to redo your house. What would he have said? He'd take a hike. You're not redoing my $50 million house. I got it just the way I want it. They always went to people whose houses, what? Needed a makeover. Then they show up. Guess what? Good news. You were chosen and I hate to say it, because your house is kind of nasty. I love that first time they came to a house, they said, okay, what are we going to do to remodel it? Burn it and build a new one, right? That's... But this is the thing. Why no fancy mansions? Because homemaker, home makeover extreme home edition is not good news for someone whose house is already dialed in. It's good news for someone who knows their house needs fixing. And this is the shepherds. The angel showed up and said, good news, Jesus saves sinners. A savior is coming. He will live a perfect life. He will die a death on the cross and shed his blood so those who are broken, those who have sinned and rebelled against God can receive forgiveness by trusting him. He will raise from the dead three days later that we might have hope of eternal life in him. And this savior is for dead sinners, broken people. Shepherd kind of people. This Savior, this Savior is for outsiders. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Speaking of outsiders, after Jesus was born, my guess would be maybe a year or two after Jesus was born. If you've got a nativity scene on your uh, mantle that's got the shepherds with the wise men, I'm not going to come to your house and knock the wise men off. Like, well, I'm good, I get it, you know, but probably the wise men came sometime later. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, some wise men came from the east. Who were they? Wise men. Where'd they come from? East. And everybody asked, how many? I don't know. It doesn't say. There were three gifts, but it could have had five guys with two cheapskates. I don't know. <laughs> Where'd they come from the east? I don't know. It doesn't say. So I'm guessing Lakeview. I don't know. That's stupid. That's silly. They came from the east of Jerusalem. They said, where's the king of the Jews? Uh, who else is asking for the king of the Jews? Nobody. So they show up. Where's the king of the Jews? We saw a star. I mean, obviously, you guys, you're looking for him. And Herod's like, what are you talking about? And so they call together the religious people. What should the religious people have been doing? Looking for the king of the Jews. They're not. They said, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Bethlehem. Everybody knows this. You've read your Old Testament. You know. It's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And they said, they said, the wise men, go to Bethlehem. And they go out, they see the star, they follow it to a house, and they find Jesus. And they give him gifts, and they worship him. And what did the religious leaders and Herod tell them? Come back and tell us. Why didn't they go with him to worship the king of the Jews? They didn't want the king of the Jews. They certainly don't want a king of the Jews that would let Gentiles from the east who follow stars... Certainly, they're not going to worship with those guys. Are you kidding me? Our temple is set up specifically so we don't have to worship with Gentiles. You think I'm going to go in and worship the king of the Jews with a Gentile astrologer? You're out of your mind. But that's exactly who the Messiah came for. Outsiders. Not those on the in club, but those who are on the outside. They had already decided that Jesus didn't fit what they wanted. They want power. They want influence. They want to overcome Rome. They want their wealth and their position established. They want their own glory. They want the insiders in the in-club to stay the insiders in the in-club. And the Messiah shows up and says, I'm going to take the outsiders. I'm going to take the lowly. The Messiah came for outsiders. Here's the problem all of us have. Everybody are lowly. Everybody is lowly. Everybody are outside. The problem we have is when we get sideways on how we see ourselves, we don't see ourselves as lowly, we miss the Messiah. If I don't see myself as needing saving, I'll never see the Messiah with good news he saves lowly people. If I see myself as an insider, I'm going to want my Messiah to keep me an insider. And Jesus, in the, in the story and the narrative of his birth, blows those all out of the water and says, I come for lowly people who know they need a Savior. I come for people who are on the outside looking in, knowing they need somebody to give them access to the kingdom of God. And that's precisely what he did. Jesus comes for the lowly. Jesus comes for the outsiders. God is most glorified to work most powerfully in the most unlikely. Just three quick applications, and then we're going to close with the song. You can imagine if LeBron James went to a playground and was going to play some pickup ball and he saw two teams. He saw one team, it's kind of scraggly. You know how they used to, when I was a kid, how we picked the basketball teams is you shoot free throws. So the first five to make free throws get on a team. What's that mean? All the best shooters are on one team and all the not so good shooters, yours truly would be on the other team. And LeBron shows up and he joins the team that can't make a basket to save their life. And he says to him, listen, here's what we're going to do. You're going to throw the ball up in the air, and I'm going to handle my business. 
because I'm going to be most glorified to destroy this good team with the, with the lowly. I know it's a silly illustration, but this is exactly how Jesus works. He's not coming to try and find all-stars to join his team because he just can't quite get it done. He's coming to the lowly because he is glorified to use people who are lowly. We most experience the power of God in those moments when we're most empty. And I, my guess would be all of us have been in that place before where all of our options have run out and all we have is our prayer and we seek the Lord and it's in those moments, isn't it? When we see God's power most profoundly. One author said it this way, God has his office at the end of my rope. And the mistake we make is thinking that we're not always at the end of our rope. If God doesn't show up, we're toast. Jesus is looking for the lowly. Those who are wise by the power of spirit recognize. Even today, I don't care how long you've been a believer, we most experience the power of God when we humbly recognize, I'm still lowly. And thank the Lord, I've got a savior for the lowly. I don't have to be impressive. I just need to receive good news. Okay, second thing. God isn't straining. I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus hasn't returned yet. And he is not anxiously trying to figure out the Rubik's Cube of the universe to put the conditions in the right place so he can show up. Like he's not worried. He's not pacing in heaven, wondering if it's going to work out. God is not straining. God is not uh, concerned. God is not up at night wondering if things are going to get dialed in. Empires are nothing in power compared to God. The Bible says God takes kings and puts them on thrones and picks them up and puts somebody else. He says uh, an, an entire nation, the Bible tells us, is not even a sand piece of sand in the bottom of a bucket when compared to God. God is not straining. He is not worried. The question is, why are we? If we're in the Lord, we don't need to be straining. We don't need to be all bound up. And I know this is hard, especially in stressful times. But the, the, the life of walking with the Lord is intended to be a life of rest, where we say God has this. Seek the Lord and rest in his awesome power. Finally, this. Outsiders become insiders. Church is one of those places where there's insiders and outsiders. I don't want to, that sounds rude, doesn't it? And a lot of you have come to this church for a long time and and you say, well, no, that's not the case. We're a welcoming church. And you know what we are. This is fantastic. It's a very welcoming church. We hear this from especially uh, new folks all the time. And it, it's a blessing. That being said, churches are kind of outsider insiders. It's just the nature of the way things are. If there were a way to make it go away, it isn't. So here's the thing. Maybe you've been attending church for a week or two, or maybe your entire life. But maybe, just maybe, you show up in a room like this with religious people who sit and listen to someone like me yammer on and you're, and you're going, you know, <laughs> I don't fit in here. Uh, if these folks knew what I was up to, they wouldn't let me in. Uh, I do a pretty good job. Maybe you think, I do a pretty good job on Sunday, seeming pretty religious. But you know what? Once I'm out the door, that, that doesn't really mark my life. And maybe coming into a room like this, for whatever reason, you uh, feel like an outsider. It doesn't even mean that you haven't been here forever. You may be of Tended here for 50 years, and you still feel like an outsider. Good news. The guy in charge of the whole thing is looking for outsiders. The Bible says Jesus 
is the head of his church. And what kind of people is Jesus looking for? Jesus is a savior for outsiders. He's not making an exclusive club. And in fact, one of the best ways a church as a body of believers can become more like Christ is to be a place where there are no insiders. And it's a great place for outsiders. I would say this specifically for those of us who in a place of like a church where we feel like outsiders, Jesus came for you in particular. Insiders become outsiders in the kingdom of of God. And I might say this for those of us who like clubs, many of us like clubs, don't be an insider. There aren't any in the kingdom of God. Jesus saves by coming to the lowly, and Jesus saves so outsiders can become insiders. 